MSW Media. Thanks to Hunter Douglas for supporting The Daily Beans. Hunter Douglas makes innovative window shade designs, gorgeous fabrics and control systems that can be scheduled to automatically adjust to their optimal position throughout the day and bring greater convenience, style, and comfort to your home. Right now, for a limited time, you can take advantage of generous rebate savings opportunities on select styles. Visit HunterDouglas.com slash DailyBeans for details. And today's episode is also brought to you by Jiminy's, maker of sustainable dog food and treats made with cricket protein that's better for the environment, using less land and water to produce. Cricket protein is a superfood that's delicious, nutritious, and easy to digest for dogs. You can save 25% on your first purchase. Go to Jiminy's.com slash DailyBeans25 and use code DailyBeans25 at checkout. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, May 5th, 2022. Today, another Oath Keeper pleads guilty to seditious conspiracy and is cooperating with the Department of Justice. New audio leaks of Kevin McCarthy show him discussing the 25th Amendment and just being an all-around douchebag. Don Jr. testified to the January 6th committee. And the Department of Justice clashes with the committee again to protect its ongoing investigation of the coup. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hello, hello, Dana. Hello. Hello, hello. Happy Thursday to everyone as you listen to this. Wednesday is we record it. Yes. And um, it's uh, the I think voices are growing louder in the battle for abortion access, which is good. I, I'm I'm hoping that so many people sharing their stories and raising their voices could possibly maybe make a difference in the final decision issued by the Supreme Court. We've never had a chance to make a, a, a difference in a Supreme yeah. Court decision like this, uh, knowing what could possibly be coming. So this is our opportunity to get loud and people are getting loud and that makes me happy. We have a lot of uh, Department of Justice and committee news today. And then later in the show, I'm going to be talking with Kami Akavan, executive director of the USC Center for the Political Future. We're going to discuss the political divide and how to speak to friends and family about politically charged issues. I know a lot of listeners have been asking, how do I approach, you know, my uncle about Trump? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Wonderful. And um, Kami has some very, very helpful information on how to break through. All right. So with that in mind, with all the news that's on, on our plates today, let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. Big, big news out of the Department of Justice today. As the third Oath Keeper, a third Oath Keeper is charged with and has pled guilty to seditious conspiracy. William Todd Wilson, Willie Wilson, a 44-year-old former leader of the Sampson County chapter of the far-right militia group, is the third Oath Keeper to admit to seditious conspiracy. Joshua James and Brian Ulrich pled guilty to the charge earlier this year and agreed to cooperate with the government. Wilson has also agreed to cooperate in the ongoing investigation as part of a plea deal, according to the Justice Department. He conspired with Oath Keepers founder Elmer Stewart Rhodes to oppose by force the lawful transfer of presidential power, according to a court filing. He also joined others in amassing firearms on the outskirts of D.C., some distributed across hotels and quick reaction force teams and plan to use them in support of their plot to halt the lawful transfer of power. Wilson and his fellow conspirators used Signal, the encrypted messaging app, to engage in numerous communications in the weeks leading up to the riot. In one post on December 14th, 2020, Wilson wrote, it's time to fight. He drove to D.C. a day before the riot with an AR-15 rifle, a pistol, ammunition, body armor, and a camouflage combat uniform, you know, just to peacefully protest his legitimate political discourse. Absolutely. Pepper spray, a large walking stick intended for use as a weapon, and a pocket, all of which he stored in a hotel room and was prepared to retrieve if called upon to do so, according to his plea documents. Wilson was present in a hotel room when Stuart Rhodes phoned a Trump intermediary and attempted to get a direct line to Trump, meaning he heard Stuart Rhodes on speakerphone with a Trump intermediary that could get a direct line to Trump, but that person declined to put Trump on the phone. We don't know who that intermediary is, but the Department of Justice does, and that person is under investigation. This is a huge step up the ladder of the coup investigation. Wilson, who federal prosecutors said was both a military and law enforcement veteran, 
had not been charged until we found out today, which suggests he had already begun cooperating with authorities. He faces up to 20 years in prison for his seditious conspiracy cop and up to 20 years in prison for obstructing an official proceeding, 18 U.S. Code 1512C2, as well as potential financial penalties. All right. I hope they get as many of these assholes as possible. Mm-hmm. And moving on. Speaking of assholes, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy discussed the 25th Amendment on a call with GOP leadership days after January 6, 2021, the attack on the Capitol, and said that the process takes too long, according to an audio recording obtained by two New York Times reporters and shared with CNN. Now, McCarthy also said during the call that he wanted to reach out to then-President-elect Joe Biden as he expressed hope for a, quote, smooth transition and said he thought impeachment would further divide the nation. The call took place on January 8th, 2021, and the audio was obtained for the new book, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future by Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns. At one point in the recording, McCarthy asked his aide for a readout of a separate call. Now, it's not clear exactly what call he was referring to. The aide responds, quote, I think the options that have been cited for the Democrats so far are the 25th Amendment, which is not exactly an elegant solution here. And McCarthy interjects to say, quote, that takes too long, too. It could go back to the House, right? Now, the aide responds, Correct. If the president were to submit a letter overruling the cabinet and the vice president, two-thirds vote in the House and the Senate to overrule the president. It's kind of an armful. (laughs) At the beginning of the audio, McCarthy can be heard saying, quote, what the president did is atrocious and totally wrong. Comments that have been previously reported by the New York Times. Now, in aftermath of the deadly attack on the Capitol, a number of Democrats, including members of leadership, publicly called for then-President Donald Trump to be removed from office, either through impeachment or the 25th Amendment to the Constitution. Invoking the 25th Amendment would have required then-Vice President Mike Pence and a majority of the cabinet to vote to remove Trump from office due to his inability to, quote, discharge the powers and duties of his office. But that would be an unprecedented step. We heard about that. And the amount of people that voted to have him removed, there's no way this would have happened. So the new audio release of McCarthy is the latest in a series of such releases featuring the House GOP leader, that have shed light on what he said privately to other House Republicans in the aftermath of January 6th attack. And the fact that McCarthy was pressing one of his aides for details about the 25th Amendment process and how it would work shows that there was a serious conversation at the highest levels of GOP leadership about the idea, not just idle chatter. And even if it was ultimately deemed not a viable option, people were talking about it. Yeah. And uh, what do you want to bet these two reporters have that other call that was referenced in this call and just haven't released it yet because they want to sell books? Yep. Seven for a fucking book. I'm, I guess ugh. you should be there should be some sort of treason charge for doing shit like this because you are. I mean, I don't know. I know treason's not the right word, but there's got to be something. <laughs> yeah. Um, misprision of a felony, maybe. I mean, yeah. And more huge news out of the Justice Department. Attorneys with the Department of Justice recently clashed behind closed doors with staff members of the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol attack. That's according to two sources familiar with the matter. In a roughly five-hour interview last month that House investigators conducted with former acting U.S. Attorney Mike Sherwin, attorneys from the Department of Justice's Office of Legislative Affairs repeatedly objected to questions that they argued could impact the Department of Justice's ongoing work prosecuting accused January 6th rioters. Sherwin had been tasked with leading the early stages of the Department of Justice's criminal investigation into the attack, and sources told ABC News that during the interview, DOJ attorneys were highly sensitive to questions posed by House investigators that were related to the early stages of the probe. (laughs) That means they're investigating it. (laughs) At one point, interactions between January 6th staffers and DOJ attorneys grew so contentious that Sherwin stepped out of the room so the discussion could continue in private. This episode reflects a rare instance of tensions surfacing between the committee and the Justice Department. And here's the buried lead, which over the past year have been quietly working together to ensure their (laughs) parallel investigations don't compromise sensitive matters involving the DOJ's criminal prosecutions. Let me let me repeat that over the past year have been quietly working together to ensure that their parallel investigations don't compromise sensitive matters in the DOJ's criminal prosecutions. Right. Because. The whole purpose of the committee is to get the truth out there. But the purpose of the Department of Justice is to indict people. So you can't screw up those investigations. Now, Sherwin is not the first former DOJ official authorized by the Department of Justice to testify before the 1-6 committee. 
Other witnesses, including former acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen, were subject to similar limitations on their testimony in front of Congress. And a lot of people got mad about that. But this is good, you guys. This is good. They said, quote, the department has a longstanding policy not to provide congressional testimony concerning prosecutorial deliberations. That's a DOJ letter sent to Rosen authorizing his testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee last year. Discussion of pending criminal cases and possible charges could violate court rules and potentially implicate rules of professional conduct governing extrajudicial statements. Sherwin, who served as acting U.S. attorney through the end of Donald Trump's administration in D.C., D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, and stayed on into the Biden administration, resigned from the Justice Department in April of 2021 after he sat for an interview with 60 Minutes that was not authorized by senior DOJ officials. Sherwin told 60 Minutes evidence potentially supported charges of seditious conspiracy against some of those who participated in the attack. Soon after the 60 Minutes interview, federal judge admonished the Department of Justice over Sherwin's comments, which the judge said could potentially taint the government's case against members of the Oath Keepers militia group charged in connection with the attack. The Justice Department's Office of Professional Responsibility launched an investigation into Sherwin over the 60 Minutes report, but it's unclear whether that probe continued after Sherwin resigned to avoid sanctions and joined a private law firm. Nearly a year after the 60 Minutes interview, in January of this year, 11 members of the Oath Keepers, including founder Stuart Rhodes, were charged by the Department of Justice with seditious conspiracy, despite Sherwin trying his best to fuck it up. So this is good news. We don't want another Iran-Contra fiasco where congressional testimony fucks up with the Justice Department investigations. Those Justice Department investigations need to be protected. Absolutely. And speaking of people testifying to the committee, Cokehead McGee, Donald Trump Jr., the son of the former president, interviewed with the January 6th committee on Tuesday. And that's according to two people familiar with the matter. Did I tell you that I I think I talk about Don Jr. so much that that Facebook has started feeding me ads for Coke spoon necklaces? Yes, you did. I saw that post, which is hilarious. And I know that you call him crotch fruit, which is wonderful. (laughs) We'll call him coked head crotch fruit. It's hard to, it's a mouthful, but you know what? Coke head crotch goblin. I love Love it. it. There you go. Crotch goblin. So, Junior's the latest member of the Trump family to provide testimony to the select committee probing the Capitol attack following the panel's interview last month with Ivanka Trump. Now, Trump's son-in-law and former advisor Jared Kushner, as well as Trump Jr.'s fiance Kimberly Guilfoyle, have also talked to investigators. Now, a spokesperson for the former president's son did not respond to a request for comment. The select panel has indicated that it's interested in Trump Jr.'s knowledge of his father's push to subvert the 2020 election. The committee has also highlighted a text message Trump Jr. sent to the then White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, as a mob overtook the Capitol on January 6th. And now in that message, he urged his father to make a more forceful statement to condemn the violence. Trump Jr. is also the latest select panel witness believed to have been in the Oval Office the morning of January 6th with Donald, his top aides, and family members. Now, shortly after they arrived for a private White House schedule obtained by the committee, Trump called Pence to make a final effort to pressure him to overturn the election. Now, Trump Jr.'s interview, what that did is it confirmed on condition of anonymity that conducted without a subpoena lasted several hours, according to people familiar with the matter. And it's not expected. Politico reported at the end of April that he intended to soon meet with the panel, which also interviewed Guilfoyle for hours on April 18th after subpoenaing her for documents and testimony. So this was... Coming up, we weren't sure if he was actually going to do it. He has done it. We don't know what he said, but he he sat and testified. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah, it'd be very, very interesting to know if he had heard any part of that call with Pence and either did or was able to testify about it or whether he, you know, invoked privilege. We don't know. Yeah. All right, everybody, we'll be right back with the executive director of the USC Center for the Political Future, Kami Akhavan. We're going to discuss the growing political divide in America and how to speak to friends and family about those politically charged issues. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG for the Beans, and today's show is sponsored by the coolest thing ever. It's called Jiminy's. Jiminy's Sustainable Dog Food and Treats. They're the perfect solution for dog owners who care about the environment and wish to reduce their pet's carbon footprint. Yes, your pet has a carbon footprint too. Jiminy's dog food uses less water and less land than traditional animal protein dog food. In comparison to traditional animal protein treats, Jiminy's cricket protein treats save 220 gallons of water per bag. Plus, my dog Olive loves them. I use them to train. That's how much she loves them. 
Sweet potatoes, blueberries, peanut butter, and pumpkin are among the plant-based ingredients in Jiminy's. Jiminy's cricket protein is easy to digest for dogs because it contains a prebiotic fiber, which supports a healthy gut flora. Jiminy's is also good for dogs with food sensitivity or dogs with allergies. This is Olive's favorite food now. And I love that it's plant-based and has some great flavors that she just scarfs right up. Definitely give Jiminy's a try. To learn more and save 25% on your first purchase, go to Jiminy's.com slash DailyBeans25 and use code DailyBeans25 at checkout. That's Jiminy's, J-I-M-I-N-Y-S dot com slash DailyBeans25 with code DailyBeans25. You'll be glad you did. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I'm honored to be joined today by the executive director of the USC Center for the Political Future, Kami Akavan. Kami, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Gill. Allison, it's a pleasure to be on your program. Thank you. I wanted to speak to you today because, well, first of all, tell us a little bit about the Center for the Political Future, because there's so much going on there and the work is so important. And that is why I'm so excited to talk to you today. So talk a little bit about the mission of what you are the executive director for. Well, I love that you're excited to talk about a university center. It is a topic that bores a lot of people, but in our case, it's very vibrant. So USC, the University of Southern California, has had an institute of politics since 1976. A lot of universities have. The one here is a little bit special and different because our mission is to train future political leaders and to do it in a way that does not bring the baggage of hyper-partisanship with it. We're here to advance civil dialogue and research that transcends those partisan divisions and help our nation find solutions to pressing challenges. So that's the point of it. And we don't just talk the talk, we walk the walk. And by that, I mean the two directors who are at the Center for Political Future are longtime opponents. That's Bob Shrum, who's worked on eight different presidential campaigns. He was the guy that told Al Gore, hey, I think we won this one. Uh, He's worked with uh, President Clinton and John Kerry as their senior advisors. He has campaigned against a guy named Mike Murphy. Murphy famously spent $100 million of Jeb Bush's PAC money for a campaign that didn't go too far. He was John McCain's senior advisor, Mitt Romney's senior advisor. These guys have been campaigning against each other for decades, but they put aside those political differences because there was something greater at stake, and that was our country. It feels like our democracy is bending to the point of almost breaking, and they had to put aside their differences and lean in to support something that they could agree on. Uh, We live in a great nation certainly has its problems, but it beats the alternatives and we need to support it when she needs us the most. So that's the urgency behind the center. And that's really what compels us on a day-to-day basis to be so focused about recruiting students to take our classes, get involved in our programs, take our workshops, get internships, train with elected officials, get experience in government agencies, learn how to cross party lines and work with people of different ideologies and remember what the common good is. And that's whatever's going to improve the lives of people living in America. That's awesome. And I love the idea of leaving the hyperpartisanship behind, although it's getting more difficult, especially if we look at now at training political leaders of the future through the lens of the Justice Alito road draft that we just all had dropped on us because they go, I mean, that opinion seems to be we were all a little prepared for Roe to be gutted, but to see the language that Alito used specifically going all the way back to the 1700s and how we should return to that and uh, old stuff coming over from England. And and I, I'm wondering now how I assume that the center has been prepping for this, but, you know, how do we now look at critical thinking and talking to each other about preserving democracy kind of through that lens, which sort of just obviously lends itself to hyperpartisanship. I mean, it's such a profound question. And certainly the leaked Supreme Court decision, what appears to be the decision, has got a lot of people fired up who are supportive of it and who think it's awful. The context for this is, to your point, so critical to remember. So Are we more divided than ever? By some measures, yes. By other measures, no. 
by some measures, we are in a state of civil war with political opponents. And that civil war is not being fought with guns and knives. That civil war is being fought with pens and keyboards. And if you look at party polarization, the parties where a member of one party supports legislation that was introduced by a member of the opposing party, it used to be that in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even the 70s, it was pretty common to have a member of one party support legislation from the other side. Today, it is so rare that it has surpassed where we were immediately following the Civil War. It's worse than that. So by some measures, the parties are more divided than ever. And we certainly see that with opinions like the one you cited. But that's kind of politics at elite levels, right? And I think to your point, people are protesting, not because of the elites, they're protesting because this affects their daily lives. And that's where that level of division is something that we, we have seen before. We've seen it throughout the late 1960s into the early 1970s. That level of division is, is back where the people are on the streets, they're fired up, and they cannot communicate with folks from the other side. But I tell you, from where I sit, I study polarization. These trend lines leading to our division have been escalating like crazy, especially over the last about 20 or 30 years. And if you look at the origin points for it, you can say broadly, the unifiers, the things that made us uniquely American, that brought us together, those things are going away. And the things that divide us, those things are accelerating on steroids. So I can speak to specifics about those unifiers, what they were and what that means, and specifics about the dividers and why they're sort of going out of control and, and escalating to a exponential division within our society. But the point is that it's happening and it's not our fault. We did not create this division. This division is now, so it, we're in the pot and the temperature is going up and we want to do something about it, but we don't know what, because every time we try to have a conversation with someone who's different politically, that conversation usually goes sideways and gets ugly fast and it feels unproductive mm -hmm. and we avoid them. And that's not how democracy works. It requires participation. That's the oxygen. And if we're avoiding speaking with people with whom we disagree, then we're starving our system of the only thing that it needs to survive. And that is our active participation. So tough answer to your question. I'm sorry to, to go on about it, but that's really, it's so complex. Uh, and I don't mean to make it complex because it's so visceral. And it's not just in Congress. It's at our kitchen tables, too. Yeah. And I think if we look at some of the wins that we've had recently, even even some stuff that might not have that hasn't been passed, but that had a huge bipartisan support. The first thing that comes to my head is the bill by Gillibrand and Joni Ernst for the Military Justice Act, where they were going to take the decision to prosecute assault out of the chain of command of the military. That bill had 66 co-sponsors in the Senate. It, it for some reason, it ended up in the NDAA and got watered down and they never brought it to the floor. But there was a consensus there. And I think if we look to see how we built that consensus or the consensus on the on the infrastructure bill that we were able to pass with bipartisan support, then we can get some ideas about where we do have some things that we can all agree on, or at least the majority of us can agree on. And I don't mean the American people, I mean the people in Congress. But I mean, it comes down to sort of critical thinking skills and the ability to win over hearts and minds that you wouldn't necessarily think that you could win over because, like you said, those conversations go south and they go south fast. So one of the biggest questions that a lot of my listeners have, a lot of the listeners have to this show is I have they say I have family members who are on the other side of me politically. And for my show, it's it's people who are on the, you know, they have family members who are on the right. And this this happens in every in every family. Everyone's got someone in their family that has a different political view than them. And I, I'm putting that nicely. I could use harsher words like fascism. But autocracy is easy because it gets things done. It just gets the wrong things done. And a lot of people get fed up with the quote unquote gridlock in Washington but that's how our system is built, is, is to move slowly and deliberately. 
it's getting a little too slow and a little too deliberate because of the division. But how would you recommend that people use their critical thinking skills and their, I guess, soft communication skills to talk to their family members? How do they find that one, those things that they can agree on without it ending up in a a shouting match at Thanksgiving with Uncle Frank? Yeah, Uh, I love the question. How do we get along? That's really the the base of it. And how can you have a conversation that will be constructive where you feel connected? The real answer, and I'm going to preface my, my solution with this, I've thought about this issue a lot. I used to run an organization called Procon.org. We did pro and con research on controversial issues. I served an audience of somewhere around 200 to 250,000 people a day, reached over 300 million people across Divisive issues like death penalty, felon voting, immigration, abortion, Arab-Israeli conflict, 80 different topics. And I'd bring people together to explore these issues, and they did not want to explore these issues together. They did not want to compromise. When I surveyed their audience and said, how many of you changed your mind on an issue based on what you read? I thought, if we break 5%, this will be amazing. We got to 36%. I thought, what the heck? So did the survey again a year and a half later, 40% people changed their mind based on what they read. So to answer your question, why did that happen? What made people change their minds? What made them receptive to different ideas? Number one superpower that I recommend to anybody when you have want to have this conversation with a loved one, your family member, a coworker, or someone, your, your neighbor, uh, is listening. And it is a superpower. And I explain why. So when people came to ProCon with a strong view of, say, the death penalty, they would feel, see their view reflected back at them a hundred times better than they could ever express it. And great statistics, great arguments, great sources. They're like, that's exactly how I feel times a hundred. And as soon as they felt heard, their brain released the same chemicals as when they feel love. It's identical. For a person to feel heard is a really powerful feeling. And once they feel heard, they develop a trust with the person who listened to them. And when you have a person's trust, you have a power. And with that power, you can then use that power to help influence what their thinking might be. And in my case, the thinking was right there on the page. Here's the counter arguments to everything you believe in. And that's where the, for the first time, perhaps ever, they listened because here's compelling arguments on the other side, not just the ridiculous straw man, this is the Tucker Carlson version of the arguments, but really tough to reckon with uh, reasons. And they thought, huh, I've never heard of that before. I never thought of it that way. You want to get people to have those I never thought of it that way moments. What a lot of us tend to do in conversation particularly with people we disagree with, is go straight to our our fact-checking. Oh, climate change is not caused by humans, it's the sun. Like, you want to say, idiot, it's not the sun, it's humans, we're doing it. But if you say that, you're not going to convince the other person. Calling them an idiot is not going to help. So then you might say, well, according to such and such scientific organizations and the IPCC and the COP26 report, and that's why we're sure it's humans. Well, that's not going to convince them either. The best thing to do is say, well, you seem to have a strong view on that issue. Where did that view come from? What values are informing that decision? How long have you felt this way? Why is this issue so important to you? And listen with curiosity. And that can be painful because we don't always care, really. But if you do it, that's how you gain trust and power. That genuineness is is so important i've i've found in in active listening is to genuinely be curious about where they get their information like you said how long have you felt this way and why are you so strong passionate about this particular thing and they do have legit reasons for for being passionate about something and they will tell you where they where they heard about it and yeah and then the of course the the desire to jump in and say, oh, you did your research on YouTube, you idiot, <laughs> is strong, right? Because, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is based in fact. And to genuinely be curious about someone else's non-facts is a very hard thing to do. 
It's a very hard thing to do. It can be painful. But I tell you, once you do it, you realize that the outcome you're hoping to achieve, if you want that person to have a different view or to give it a second thought or to consider a different perspective, that is not going to happen with the fact-checking mentality. It's not going to happen with the you're an idiot mentality. It can only happen with the bridge builders mentality, which is I will listen, I will absorb the pain of the listening, and I will do it with intense curiosity because I really want to know how the hell did this person come to this view and ask these non-judgmental questions to really understand it. And then when you do that, you find as the listener, you'll find that it's very satisfying because now that view makes a little more sense to you. And you think, okay, now I kind of get it. Now I get where they're coming from. And now I can better position myself to, to do something with their with this trust. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from people who had vaccine hesitant children uh, and said, they would tell me, Kami, my kid will not get vaccinated and there's nothing I can do to make them do it. And I said, well, just listen to them, have them explain their arguments. And as soon as that happens, then they trust the parent. And then the parent says, well, have you considered this? And then the counter arguments and many of those kids got vaccinated. And I just thought that's that's how you, you want to make change. Start by listening. Okay. Uh, and I tell you, when we think about it as us versus them, it's so binary. But really, it's one issue that it becomes that point of division. And the reality is that if we try to say, like, let me just find what common ground I have with this other individual, then that becomes kind of like trying to find the unicorn. You just keep searching and searching and searching and good luck. Maybe you'll never find it. Most people have never seen a unicorn. You could try a different tactic. And this is something called superordination. And that means, like, for instance, if I live in L.A. and you live in San Diego, you might say, well, I like the Padres. And, you, and I might say, well, I like the Dodgers and say, well, we should hate each other. But if you superordinate like, oh, we both like baseball. Suddenly, instead of being in two separate camps, now we're in the same camp <laughs> and now we're on the same team. But let's say you and I agree we like baseball. And then here comes somebody and says baseball is boring. I like football. I'm like, OK. Or in two camps, or we could say, guess what? We all like sports. We're like, okay, now we're on the same team. And then instead of somebody says, sports are boring. I care about politics. We're like, okay, instead of two camps, we all love competition. Now we're one camp again. If we keep expanding our circle. If you do that or think about it that way, everybody is in your circle. It's not finding common ground. I saw that so much in the military because it was you know, when we were on base, it was the machinist mates are cooler than the uh, the ETs, the you know, the electronic technicians. And uh, we're all both of us are cooler than the electricians mates. Oh, but then it's oh, the army is over here. Well, Navy is better than the army. Uh, but then the Marines come in and the army and the Navy are like, whatever, Marines. Ah. And then then you're in a battle group, right? And you're, the carrier is like, the destroyer, we're having a competition. But then another carrier group shows up and it's like, oh, it's our carrier group against them. And then another country comes into the conflict, you know, and it just keeps going up and up. I, I've, I've noticed that a lot. And another very cool tool that I picked up from a mentor at, when I was working at the Department of Veterans Affairs is when you're trying to get consensus and you're trying to sell change and get a buy-in is to listen and then to present questions in order to get the other person to come up with your idea on their own. There's a great example of that in the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, when she wants to convince her husband that her daughter should work at the travel agency. And she says, if we can make him think it was his idea, he'll be bought into it 100%. And so that was a skill that I spent years trying to polish. It was trying to get other people to come up with my idea. And it's not necessarily my ideas, but like if the VA is like, this has to be done and you have to get everyone to like it, you know, it's coming from above, right? And so you can all be, you can get everyone in like, hey, it's coming from above. We're in this together. Let's figure out a way to do it. Or you can present questions to everyone to, until they reach the idea that has come down from above. So there's just so many ways to do this. And it feels like trickery, but it's not. It's just good communication. 100%. I love that you ask questions. The notion of questions is, is considered a form of slow thinking. So 
what that means is, let's say someone confronts you with their their views on a political issue, and you think those views are stupid, uh, and you want us when when we hear that we get emotionally triggered, and that's just a part of our brain. It's called the hypothalamus. It's the lizard brain. It says fight, flee, or freeze. And a lot of times we want to fight and confront, or we we flee. We're like, well, I'm never doing that again. I'll just avoid the situation, turn the other cheek, I'm out of here. Or It's why it's so hard to, to have a discussion with someone about how they're privileged, because <laughs> right? that just immediately turns on a defense mechanism, because that person may have had a hard life. And you're telling them they're privileged and they're like, no, I'm not, you know. And so it's very difficult to even take a step further past that. Oh, it's a great example. Right. Right. And so if the way to get out of that, that fight, flight or freeze mode, uh, the, which is our knee jerk reaction, that's what our, our evolution has taught us to do. We don't have time to make, you know, thoughtful, reflective decisions. We want to just instantaneous what do I need to do? And then do that. But there's this other part of our brain that humans have. It's the prefrontal cortex. And that's where that ability to ask questions comes from that region. And this is where we can slow down our thinking. And the slow thinking, fast thinking is Daniel Kahneman, who, uh, who really championed it. But it's, these are filters. So rather than let our emotion be the one that dictates uh, how we respond, if we start asking questions, we slow our own thinking down and we force the other person that with whom we're communicating, we force them to slow down their thinking as well. And then we get into a very different kind of conversation space where it's not person versus person, then it becomes idea versus idea. And when it's ideas, we can bash ideas instead of bashing each other. And that becomes a lot more of a constructive conversation then when we're saying you're an idiot and you don't get it, you just, you don't understand. I've had a tough life too. And, you know, defense, 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 fight, flight, freeze, all of those things. Just start asking questions with intense curiosity. It is the best recipe to avoid those awful conversations. Yeah. And that slow thinking is, is super important. That second great lesson that mentor taught me was that once you're done with a meeting, no one in that meeting should know how you feel about anything. that was really hard i had i had a bad poker face and so somebody would be talking and i would have this look on my face like what and um, he would look at me and he would be like face your face and i was like oh yes okay (laughs) you have because you just we immediately have that uh like you said it's built into our dna well this has been an amazing conversation can you tell people where they can get more information how they can learn more about the USC Center for the Political Future, how they can get involved and perhaps where they can get some of these materials that you utilize to have these conversations and to close that gap. Oh, 100%. Thank you for that. So you'd have to Google the Center for the Political Future. It's a long URL, too hard to remember. So just Google that. You can also Google me. My name's Kami. I'm not a lot of commies in politics, but, uh, but there I am. And I'd also suggest going to websites like the Listen First Project. They give a lot of these uh, tools and resources right in there. It's an umbrella organization of about 350 or so do-good organizations. So if what I'm saying is not really resonating, there's different groups within that umbrella that speak specifically to military veterans and cater to, to those needs or or young people, millennials and Gen Z or seniors or rural voters or whatever. There's different organizations to serve all of those groups. There's a lot of people who want us to get along. There really are, Alison. And and I just want to emphasize that if you feel isolated and alone and that this nation is going to hell in a handbasket, a lot of people feel that way. And we're here to support. We don't want this to happen. And there's a large group of people. We're not as vocal, but a large group of people are here on your side. We are the exhausted majority. And there's more of us than there are of the hyperpartisans. And we need to remember that. Uh, before we uh, put on our armor and try to go to battle. We don't need to be fighting with each other. We agree on more things than we don't. Awesome. Yes. And thank you so much for spending a little time with me today. Kami Akavan, I appreciate you and uh, the good work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hello, everyone. It's AG for The Daily Beans. And our show today is brought to you by the most amazing window treatments ever, Hunter Douglas. They're not just beautiful. They're not just gorgeous. They don't just have innovative shade designs, but they have these control systems that can automatically adjust to their optimal position throughout the day. That's what makes them so awesome. 
With Hunter Douglas's PowerView technology, that's what it's called, you can set your shades to automatically adjust for the perfect balance of light, privacy, and insulation throughout the day. Hunter Douglas shades diffuse harsh sunlight. They fill the room with a nice glow. It's so pleasant. And it's so much cooler in my house in the summer. And it keeps it warmer in the winter. And they provide privacy, too. Hunter Douglas provides privacy. When you're inside, you can see out, but no one can see in. And like I said, warmer in the winter, cooler in the summer. That lowers your utility bills. It eases the pressure on our electrical grids. It's sustainable. I love these things. Thanks to Hunter Douglas, you can enjoy great convenience, style, and comfort in your home. And I love how the PowerView technology keeps the ideal balance of light, privacy, and insulation no matter what time of day it is. And right now, for a limited time, you can take advantage of generous rebate savings opportunities on select styles. Visit HunterDouglas.com slash DailyBeans for details. That's HunterDouglas.com slash DailyBeans for details on limited time generous rebate savings opportunities on select styles. Hey, I'm Ben Micellis. I'm Brett Micellis. And I'm Jordy. And we are the hosts of the Midas Touch podcast, the top-rated, top-watched political podcast for pro-democracy content. Each week, we do multiple episodes where we break down the political issues of the day here in the United States and abroad as we fight for democracy. Isn't that right, Brett? That's right, Ben. We've had conversations with some incredible guests like White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, Beto O'Rourke, DNC Chair Jamie Harrison, Glenn Kirshner, Mary Trump, celebrities like Deborah Messing, Alyssa Milano, Michael Rappaport, and more. So subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Midas Touch, M-E-I-T-A-S-T-O. UCH podcast. Jordy, anything to add? Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news is on the way. And if you have anything you want to send in to us, just anything at all, you can send it. I mean, we we play what the mutt. I love to see your Easter bunny photos, Halloween pictures. Pictures of your pod pets, animals in the wild. We haven't heard from New York in the wild. I would love to hear from them again soon. If you have uh, would-be stories, whatever you want to send in, you can do it by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. First up, from Anonymous, pronoun she and her. Hi, ladies. I've been listening since the kitchen days. Woohoo! And the Fantasy Indictment League theme song still makes me laugh. I'm going to be indicted. I have a correction. On Tuesday, Brian Mark Riggs said the Russian people have been ruled by tyrants and dictators because they can't rule themselves, and that if Putin uses nukes against Ukraine or NATO, we should wipe out the pathetic Russian people. Yeah, that I disagree with. That would be genocide, yes. And that is a war crime, yes, no matter what Putin does. The Russian people are entitled to the same dignity and rights as any other human beings, and it is not their fault that generations of corrupt kleptocrats have oppressed them. Do Americans deserve to be wiped out because Trump was elected? Of course not. Brian's dismissal of the Russian people as somehow inferior is exactly the kind of logic that racist colonizers use to legitimize oppression going back thousands of years. We should be better than that. We are better than that, Anonymous. Thank you for being open to corrections. It shows real integrity. I'm attaching a pod pet tax, what the mutt, my foster fail Oreo patrolling her window in the Halloween costume as a menad. Yes, I'm a huge nerd. Am I saying that right? Menad? I don't know what that is. Maynad? I don't either. Now I have to find out what that is. Mayonad? Huh. Well, let's guess the breed here, because what a beautiful baby. It looks like there's, sp- uh, what's that, Spitz? Right? Look at that little tail. Yeah, um, the Spitz tail, it, the, the face looks like it have pity in it. Yeah, maybe pity and Sharpay. Maybe and some chow, right? Yeah, of course. All right, let's see what we've got here. Australian cattle dog, blue healer, pitbull chow. We got the pit bull and the chow. Nice. Beagle and, quote, super mutt. I love the super I was going to say blue healer with the little spots on the nose, but I skipped it because I seem to be wrong every time. <laughs> oh, and you would have been right. See, yeah. you got to stay with your guts. I know. I like super mutt. All right. This is from Raina, pronoun she and her. Greetings, ladies of the Leguminati. First of all, I want to thank you for supporting my sanity. I love Mondays now because I know another episode will be dropping. Enclosed is a picture of a subscription box for babies. I created, drawing from my own experience as a music therapist. It's stocked with sustainable products that support development for the first 12 months, all of which are sourced from maker moms and small minority-owned businesses. Listeners can find me on Crate Joy under Mama Frog Baby, the eco-friendly subscription box, or mamafrogbaby.com. Amazing. I love this. 
sustainable baby products created by maker moms and small minority owned businesses. We have some really cool fucking listeners, man. Oh my God. And look at this. It's so cute. I want that outfit. Do you make it in my size, Raina? <laughs> I need that. I need that with the elephants. That's so amazing. And I see a caterpillar. Okay. This is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing this. Okay. Mamafrogbaby.com. Wonderful. Beautiful. Thank you. Next up from Karen, no pronouns given. Dear Daily Beans crew, I'm so glad I found you and your kin. This has been a tough couple of years. I'm so angry today about the Supreme Court potential ruling that I went looking for good news on my phone. I rediscovered what qualifies as a pet tax and a whoopee story all in one. Puff was not my dog, but my parents. She has since crossed the Rainbow Bridge. She loved baby. She took baby to bed and played very gently with her. We never told her, but we had a backup baby if something happened to it. Oh, my goodness. She used the nose as a pacifier when she was tired. Look at the baby. So sweet. Oh, and a wet the mutt. But I don't know. This looks like a Pomeranian. Oh, it's Pomeranian. I would say like full-blown Pomeranian there. So adorable. Thank you. And a little bit of chow. Just kidding. All right. This is, <laughs> this is from Dina, pronoun she and her. Hi, AG and DG. I love listening to you every morning on my morning walk with Molly. See pet tax photo because you feed my need for news and mockery of the madness we're witnessing. I'm writing to share something that's super exciting to me. I can actually say thank you for coming to my TED Talk because I actually did a TED Talk. <laughs> nice. I researched social support communication and my campus chose me to give a talk about how to socially support people going through grief. It went live yesterday, and I want to share it with the world because I think it can help all of us as we cope with all the darkness that surrounds us. Amen to that. To assuage my feelings of awkwardness at shameless self-promotion, I'm attaching pet tags of my dog, Molly, uncharacteristically snuggling with a new whoopee. It will no doubt be destroyed within a week. <laughs> and the link to this will be in the show notes for today because it's a YouTube link and it's a little bit complicated. AG. The link will be in the show notes. Perfect. Everyone will be able to see that. And then you can see Dina's TED Talk. And then she's, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. And then look at the sloth whoopee. Oh my God, so sweet. I love dogs with their stuffed animals like this. Oh, it's so great. So cute. Thank you so much. And congratulations on your TED Talk. All right, next up from anonymous pronoun she and her. I, I have done pet partner animal assisted therapy for nearly 20 years. Because of COVID, I had not had a workshop teaching people how to become a therapy team in two years. Over the weekend, I had one. Nine possible teams were taking the first step. Wow. Recently, I had to retire my latest therapy dog. There have been seven over the years. My next one will be Bugsy, my rescue German shepherd dog. He acted like he had done workshops a hundred times, meeting and greeting everyone, though this was his first time. We take our evaluation at the beginning of June, and I'm sure we will pass with flying colors. Dana, I wanted to share this as on Wednesday's podcast, you made the comment that those little things make the big things happen. Not exactly your quote, but close. After doing pet therapy, you learn this to be so true. I've had people come up to me and tell me a certain dog of mine had been instrumental in making their child read. Wow. Helped a stroke victim that courage, gave that stroke victim the courage to try or make first responders be able to take what they are seeing a little better. Thanks to all wow. of you. The, the therapy dogs are amazing. Mm -hmm. Yes. I remember working at the VA and, and working with the therapy dog team. We had a therapy little horse too. Yeah. Oh, just incredible work. And Thank you for doing that. Seriously, Anonymous, whoever you are, you're an angel. I, I just, you know, they have them in some of the airports now where you walk in and there's a, ther there's a dog you can pet to calm yourself, which is what we need in airports for sure. And so on my trips when I'm traveling, if there's a dog, I'll just put my suitcase and I'll, you know, get down on their level and just hang out with them for a minute. And it calms you. It absolutely calms you. I love the story. And that is a beautiful German Shepherd. All right. This is me. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This next one is from Cafe, or it could be Kathy, but I think it's Cafe Deutsch, uh, pronoun she and her. Oh, I am so angry. I'm angry that we are so fucking battle-worn that we sit in our houses watching news about the brick-by-brick -brick dismantling of the very houses we sit in, which are no longer safe. Structures women have built for decades upon decade upon decade simply to be destroyed by thieves in the night at the hands of soulless, power-hungry men waiting for a blowjob. I'm angry that for 64 years I have fought by pen and by foot and by vote to have the same rights and protections as men and still get called hun when the gray roots of my hair show 
and my step has slowed, filled with the wisdom of my life lived. I'm angry that we have been objectified and sexualized, then punished for being the very vessels of pleasure and bears of life they falsely revere. I'm angry at me. I'm angry at you for simply not putting on our shoes and taking to the street, compelled by a uniquely female silent call that stirs us awake like the cry of a baby at night despite our exhaustion. I'm angry, literally boiling with rage, that we will be bounty hunted for exercising agency over our bodies by some jackass with a gun and a bud who can follow us and maybe even kill us because they've given some perversion that they are doing God's work. I'm angry that we think there's still time to talk about it, to legislate, to contemplate, to hope. I'm one body, but it's still got fight. My worn marching boots are ready. I've tried them on. They still fit, ready for action. Then war is waged upon women. We have to rise up just like we do every day to carry the world. Wow. Cafe, thank you so much for that. I hope I gave it justice as I was reading it. I didn't know what I was expecting when I first started with the first line, but I got it very quickly, and I hope everyone felt that. That is so well written. I'm going to remember this. I'm going to remember this forever, Kathy. Okay. I'm one body, but it's still got fight. My worn marching boots are ready. I've tried them on, and they still fit ready for action. I know. And then the end... We have to rise up just like we do every day to carry the world. Oh. I, I'm i glad we read this on the Daily Beans. I feel like this should be published somewhere. I know, me too. Cafe, if you can, I, I, if you can find, if you, want it, if you want it to be spread farther, this is absolutely beautiful and powerful. I, I would suggest if you have it in you and you have the desire to submit it to publications because this is a stunning Display of words. I felt this in my bones. Goodness. That is an incredible place to end the show. If anyone listening, I know that there are a lot of journalists that listen to this. If, if there's anyone listening that has a way to get this into a publication and uh, Cafe would like to prove that, reach out to us, AG, what would be the best email? Because I bet you there's someone listening. Hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Yeah, please just reach out and say if you have a way and then we can... Reach out to Kathy Cafe because I'm sure that we have her email based on the submission. So or yeah, dailybeanspod.com yeah. on contact. You can do it that way too. Let's get this, let's get this out to more people. This is fucking powerful. Thank you. Yeah, amazing. I I can't top that. I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts, Dana? I do not. I don't even think they would be warranted or justified at this point. Same, same Z. So uh, until tomorrow, everyone will be back. Please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q. I've been AG. And I have been DG. And them's The Beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W-Media. <laughs>